I'll give you a little bit, uh, I'll give you some more information about myself. I am married to my wife, Lauren. I wish I had a picture, but uh, we've been married, it'll be eight years in June. We met in Israel, it's a really cool story. I'm not gonna tell it now, um, but it's really cool. And then we have a son named Asher, who will be two tomorrow. And so he's the cutest, I'm biased, Although uh, Tyler and Mary Elizabeth's daughters are also very cute, uh, we've become quick friends this weekend, and so, uh, and you also have really great pastors. Uh, Tyler and Mary Elizabeth have been pastors to both me and my wife um, in some pretty difficult times, and so uh, I'm grateful for them as well. So our passage today is going to come from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Since you call upon a father who judges all people according to their actions without favoritism, you should conduct yourselves with reverence during the time of your dwelling in a strange land. Live in this way, knowing that you were not liberated by perishable things like silver or gold from the empty lifestyle you inherited from your ancestors. Instead, you were liberated by the precious blood of Christ like of a flawless and spotless lamb. Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but was only revealed at the end of time. This was done for you, who through Christ are faithful to the God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So now your faith and hope should rest in God. As you set yourselves apart by your obedience to the truth, so that you may, might have genuine affection for your fellow believers, Love each other deeply and earnestly. Do this because you have given, been given new birth, not from the type of seed that decays, but from the seed that doesn't. This seed is God's life-giving and enduring word. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We can have living hope because God still speaks today. I don't know about you all, but these last few years have been anything but normal for me. I mean, we've had two highly divisive presidential elections. We've had a pandemic. There's been polarization at work, maybe at church and families and in our pers personal lives. And to steal a, a phrase that I got sick and tired of hearing a few years ago, we truly have experienced unprecedented times. These are just a few of the short lists of things that we have collectively experienced. But many of us find ourselves having to navigate new experiences in our lives. Maybe it's a new situation such as the loss of a spouse. Maybe it's becoming a grandparent for the first time. Maybe it's starting a new job or at a new school, adopting children, and figuring out what the church life may look like after a pandemic. And I think if we were to continue to name things about new experiences we have, the list would go on and on. As I've been thinking about this, I think sometimes when we face new situations and new experiences, it can be difficult. It can be a struggle. And this was the case for me in one of the recent 
uh, new experiences I had in my life. And that was when I became a father. And I want to preface this to say I love my son and I love my wife. But as I became a new father, I struggled with how do I continue to live my life while bringing in a new person into my family that I have to take care of, that I have to help feed, that I have to make sure that his diaper was changed. I remember at the hospital when they gave Asher to us and then they sent us off, I said, are you sure you don't want to come with us? Because I did not know what would take place in the weeks and months and the years to come. Now, luckily, to help that transition, we had some family that helped us take care of Asher for those first few weeks, but it was a new experience. And I struggled with how do I continue to do all that I want to do, all that I am called to do, all that I have to do, while also taking care of Asher. I had a few weeks of paternity leave, but then that was when real life hit, when I had to go back to my job. And I am not going to lie, I really struggled with balance during that time. I worked, and I worked because that was the rhythm of my life before Asher was born. That summer, Asher was born in April, and that summer I went on multiple trips. I was gone on numerous evenings, and even when I was at home, I felt the temptation to open up my laptop and send just a few more emails. When I was at home, I wasn't fully present, even when I was not looking at emails, because I was so tired from spending time working. And and I justified this because I said, well, I'm a pastor. People need Jesus, right? So I need to focus on my work. But what was I doing? I was neglecting my family at times. And this was because I didn't know how to cope with the new experiences, the new reality that I had as a father. I struggled to adopt this role and to fully love my son and my wife. You see, we all live in a complex, ever-changing world where we continually need to learn how to adapt and change. We always are going to find ourselves in a new situation. And when we are faced with these new situations, we have two options. The first is this. The first option is to continue to live the life that we had previously. To double down, to put our heads down, and to continue going forward in that new season with new people and new experiences. This is what I did when I first became a father. And I say this not to elicit shame about people who double down and continue going through that, because this is what I've done. But I think that this points to a fear that we may have in our life, where we're afraid of the new realities that we have. Life is not what it used to be when I felt comfortable, when I knew what to do, when I knew what to say, when I knew who was around me. 
sometimes this is not a healthy way of living. Just like in my life, workaholism was not the healthy choice. Because I neglected to love the people I loved most dearly. And ultimately, I was also wearing myself out. That's the first option. To continue going as if nothing has changed. The second option is this. We can learn to adapt to the new situation. We can embrace what life is giving us, how life is changing around us, and make the needed changes in order to embrace this new reality. We can do this by doing things like having more disciplined schedules, rethinking what it might mean to be a community after the pandemic, going to bed early because you know your child is going to wake you up in the middle of the night. This approach of learning to live with this new reality does not negate the past. It does not say that, okay, those things were bad, but now I need to live differently. Instead, it honors the past and allows us to live freely into the future and the present because life never stays the same. Sometimes, you see, this new reality confronts us when it comes to things like our jobs, our family, our work, our schooling. But in today's passage, the people whom First uh, Peter was addressed to, they're faced with a new reality as well. But rather than it being the new reality of a job, it was the new reality of faith. And so I think as we reflect on this passage together and how this community was able to embrace this new reality of faith, it can help us embrace the new realities we find ourselves facing every day. You see, the people Peter was writing to, they were faced with a changing circumstance. This wasn't a pandemic. This wasn't a loss of a job. This was not a birth of a child. Instead, they went from having no faith in Jesus to having faith in Jesus. And this was a big shift. And this shift caused them to ask themselves this question. How do I live my faith out in my daily life? How does being a Christian change my life? And this was a difficult question for them, because to be faithful in their faith, it meant that they had to completely change how they lived in the world. It changed all of their interactions. It would change their response to their spouse when an argument began. It would change how they talked about a coworker when they messed up. And ultimately, this community, it would change their family relationships because it meant that they probably lost family members and potentially even their jobs because of their faith. And this is a side note. What we learn from the church today in this passage is that faith in Jesus isn't something we simply add to our life, like we would add sugar to some iced tea. Authentic faith doesn't mean we just go to church, pray before meals, read the Bible occasionally. Faith in Jesus changes who we are on all levels. 
Faith in Jesus changes how we interact with people, how we approach our job, how we approach our spouses, our children, how we approach people we disagree with, how we even use our money and our influence. Faith encompasses our entire life. Faith encompasses our entire life. And this community understood that because for them to be a follower of Jesus meant that they were facing persecution. Faith in Jesus was costly. It cost them friends, family, jobs, physical pain, emotional pain, and I wonder even spiritual pain. This is the new reality that they faced when they decided to have faith in our risen Lord. And, and, and Peter talks about how they were in a strange land. No, they didn't move from the church at Rome to the church at Corinth, or from Thessalonica to Philippi, but they were in a new and strange land because of their new Christian status. Life was different. They had different values, commitments, and even a new community. And because of this new reality, they were experiencing persecution, judgment, and the marginalization of life because of their faith. This is the new reality that they felt. It included things like persecution and even death. But it also included things like not being welcomed at their favorite wealth or restaurants, their close friends not wanting to spend time with them anymore to go golfing or even being invited to the Christmas dinner. So when the church faced this question, what do we do? So the church faced this question, what do we do when everything changes? What do we do when we are suffering? To this question, Peter gives them a word of hope. And he says this, conduct yourself with reverence. Reverence towards God is not this impersonal fear of God. Instead, reverence towards God is a confidence and in leaning into the relationship that God offers us. Reverence is rooted in our relationship with God. Peter then tells them that God shows them no favoritism. This is a good word for a people who are suffering, a people who are being marginalized and mistreated. In essence, Peter is saying, you don't have to be from the right family, or you don't have to go to the most prominent church or have the most money. God's grace is offered to all. And that is a good word, not only for them, but for us today, that God's grace is offered to all people. And this is a, a message of hope, and it is reliable because God's grace is eternal, as Peter says. And, and God's grace is unlike wealth, status, or power, the things that we often put our hope in. It's not like silver or gold that will pass away. It's not like the beginning and ending of summer, or when you buy a new iPhone and then a few years later, it ends up not holding a charge, so you have to buy another one. God's gracious activity has no beginning or end. It is ever-present 
with us. And this is where we can find living hope. Peter tells the people that the source of power is seen in the person of Jesus. Because in Jesus we see the fullness of God's presence, God's love, and God's grace at work on our behalf. Jesus, as Peter paints for us, is a flawless lamb that liberates the world from sin and death. But, that, but Jesus was not God's only movement of grace. We see here this imagery that readers would have been reminded of, of their past history. That God not only moved in the person of Jesus, but that God was actually a God who had always been moving. You see there's this illusion or this remembrance of when the, the, they received the Passover lamb. Now if you know the history of Israel, you know that they were once in slavery to Egypt. And God brought them out of that slavery. And during this final plague, God sent to Israel, um, God spared Israel because they killed a lamb and spread its blood on the door. So when God saw this blood on the lamb, God passed over and the people inside were protected. The lamb, this Passover lamb, acted as God's liberating actions on their life. This lamb liberated the people. And so the author is saying that Jesus did the same thing for the entire world. That through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can be liberated from all that keeps us down, that all that keeps us in bondage. <clears throat> through dying, through rising, salvation and is offered to all. This is a word of hope to a people trying to figure out how do we live our faith out while suffering in this new circumstance. You see, they could have hope in Jesus because unlike Rome, Christ existed before the world's creation. And therefore, Christ had power and authority over the powers of that day. They could have hope because this plan of liberation existed before the world even began. And that God had continually been acting throughout the history of Israel and the world to liberate the world. They could have hope. And they could have hope because Jesus' death and resurrection was not just to be for the haves, but also the have-nots. God would not pick and choose who could receive salvation and said salvation and hope would be offered to all, to the poor, to the persecuted, to the put down. And they could have hope because God was faithful to Jesus to raise him up to new life through the power of the Spirit. And that is what we celebrate during this season of Easter. The people had hope because God had acted in the past and promised to continue to act in their present circumstances and in the future as well. But this hope was not something that they were invited to just sit idly by and wait for. Instead, they were invited to live this hope out into the world. Because they could have hope in Christ and the liberation that was promised, 
they were invited to continue to be faithful to Jesus in the life that he lived. They were to set themselves apart and to be obedient to truth, meaning the reality that God had brought salvation and liberation in the person of Jesus. And the author tells us this obedience was to, or this obedience was to lead them into genuine, authentic love for one another. This is no small task. Sometimes we throw around the word love saying, oh, well, just love your neighbor. Or, oh, I just love you. Genuine, authentic love is difficult. I mean, sometimes people can be so difficult to love. But this genuine love that they were invited to embrace was not something that they could do on their own. But instead, they needed to be removed from their current circumstances of their past lifestyles and live into the new life that Jesus offered. Genuine love expressed amongst the community and to each other was possible because of the new life made possible through Jesus' death and resurrection. During Easter, we celebrate this hope of new life. That in the future we will have new life where we can dwell with Christ and God and the Spirit in the future. But we also celebrate this new life that God is bringing to our life and to our communities and to the world around us today. And we live into that through genuine love. During Easter we celebrate this. This word of hope. This word of love is not static, like words on a page. Instead, it's at work, breathing new life into the world around us. This word is alive and active, and not even death can defeat this word. It is the life-giving presence through the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. This word of, is proclaimed through scripture and holding on to the living into a new reality as strangers in a land. Strangers whose lives are not defined by geography, whose lives are not defined by their family ties or status, but instead through life-giving promises and actions that we are promised in the resurrection. And this is a word that breathes hope and life in an ever-changing circumstances. It's this word that breathes new life into broken relationships, empowering reconciliation to be found. It's this word that brings life by motivating a community to come together despite their, dis or their differences. It's this new word that empowers the church to go out into the world and be hope for the poor, the marginalized, the downtrodden. It's this word that seeks rebirth of a church after a pandemic. While life may not look the same, God's spirit is still at work, breathing life. And you see, it is this hope it is this living word that breathed life into me, into my family. If you remember the story I began with at the beginning, I struggled with becoming a new father. 
I struggled with how do I give my attention to my son and to my wife while also living into my call as a pastor. But this living word spoke into my life and invited me into some new rhythms, into a new reality. And I remember the day that the Spirit did this. I lived in Maryland at the time. I remember I was cutting the grass one late afternoon. <clears throat> I was listening to an audio biography of one of my favorite pastors, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message. And I, the author was talking about how Reverend Peterson had a child. And he was sharing the story about how one day, Dr. Peterson went into the living room, and one of his daughters was there and asked him, Daddy, will you play with me? And, and Dr. Peterson said, well, I can't do that. I'm sorry. I have, I have a church meeting to go to tonight. I, I want to play with you, but I cannot. And his daughter looked up at him and said, Dad, you've had a church meeting 27 nights in a row. When are you going to play with me? And I remember hearing that and feeling the power of the Holy Spirit convicting me. I didn't have a church meeting 27 nights in a row, but I was constantly consumed with work. And I remember hearing uh, the person talk about how Dr. Peterson uh, reflected on that. So Dr. Peterson went from that experience and he walked to his church meeting because he lived so close to the church that he could walk. And so as he was walking, he was spending time praying and reflecting on these words that his daughter had just shared with him. And he got to a place where he said, and his, where he was ultimately going to resign. Because he did not want to put church over his family. And so when he shared with the board, the board would not let him resign. Instead, the board said, I, or we will do all of the other tasks. You do what you need to do to be a pastor. You do what you need to do to be a father, and we will take care of everything else. And it was in that story that this life-giving, life-breathing spirit empowered me to start to think about, well, what do I need to give up? <clears throat> What do I need to do to be faithful to my family, but also to this call? And ultimately, this came through a transition. We ended up moving a few months later to the warm state of Florida. Side note, when we visited, it was the first time it snowed in like five years. And I was like, I thought I was signing, signing up for warm. But... We ultimately moved and started this new assignment. And this new reality, this new assignment, allowed for me to focus on my family more while also living out in, or living out my call. You see, new circumstances in life can be difficult. But even in the difficultness of new circumstances, we can have a living hope because God's Spirit still speaks today. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God is breathing new life into our world. There is no place that is exempt from this new life. There is no community, 
No individual, no situation that God cannot bring and breathe new life into. This is the invitation we have in front of us today. And it's the same one that the original authors had in front of them as well. We are invited to hear this new life, this new hope, and put our faith and trust in it in a new world. And we are invited to respond together by discerning how we can align our lives with what the Holy Spirit is doing in our world today. This is no small task, church. We are not on our own, though, when we are left to discern what God is doing. We have companions for this journey. We have things like the scriptures and the stories and letters that contain in it. And in those letters and stories, we receive a picture of a God who is at work in the past and a God who is going to complete his work in the future. We have a community that journeys with us and gives us wisdom and encouragement in our discernment. And ultimately, we have the same Spirit who, is raised, who raised Jesus and is actively at work in the world to convict, to empower, and to lead us into rhythms of new creation. So, we can either place our hope in this life-giving word by participating in new life, or we can reject it by clinging to whatever else comforts us. I want to be the type of person to put my courage and my trust in the hope of this life-giving word. How about you? How about you? Dear God, we come to you today as a people desperate for your Spirit's presence, your Spirit's guidance, your Spirit's breath. May we be a people who cling to this hope. May we be a people who live in this hope. May we be a people who love the world around us, God. Give us this hope. Give us this courage. Give us 